This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So one of the main events of the last 10 years is the publication of my longtime collaborator, Nick Blurton Jones' book, 2016. We've waited for decades. Uh, it takes a long time to do what he did in that book. Theoretically, very thoughtful, well-warranted hypotheses. He's testing with demographic data. I, I, I recommend it very highly. And one positive review uh, said... Um, was, was positive about the book and also mentioned enlivened by the photographs of Jim O'Connell, who is also a part of this tripartite long-term collaboration. I'm taking advantage of some of uh, Jim's photographs and what I'm going to try to do in 14 minutes. Let's see. Um, so... Wow, what are we certain about? I, you know, this is science. So my ideas have changed about so many things, um, and I expect they'll continue to, but I think we all mostly, uh, fairly certain, that we, we got to be human long before the Holocene, which is the last 10,000 years, long before agriculture, and that makes the places where we find people living on wild food and solving foraging problems every day an opportunity to see what those are and and how people do it. Uh, And they vary remarkably by sex, age, and local ecology, both the problems and the solutions. But I can make these generalizations, uh, you know, maybe a few exceptions here and there, but really not very many. Globally, where people are foraging, men tend to prioritize things that come in really big packages, produce real bonanzas, but they're very unpredictable, Women tend to specialize in things that are very reliable. They come in smaller packages. And kids, they try in a lot of places to be and are very active foragers, but they're not big enough or strong enough to fully cover their nutritional requirements. It's also true across all the examples that we've got, that in a foraging population, actually this is true in all human populations, that nobody eats all they acquire or acquires all they eat. Uh, The things that men tend to target go around to everybody. Everybody claims a share. They do not go especially to their own mates and offspring. Women, on the other hand, their daily take is what makes sure the kids get fed every day. And a fourth thing that's true, generally, uh, in, in well, every, all of us here in this room and, and um, people everywhere on the planet rely on fire and cooking. So what's likely Well, we are here in a kind of um, political economy and ecology that's different from what's been going on over the history of human evolution. And the Holocene especially is is really different from the Pleistocene. So the Holocene is this last 10,000 years when we get this real equilibration in, in climate. But even where... Uh, we're, we're looking at uh, the only, it's only us moderns that are left on the planet, but, but even where people are part-time foragers or where they're using motor vehicles or firearms or metal pots and pans, all things that are very recent, even there we can learn enormous things by paying attention to the trade-offs they face. So these illustrations show those hods of guys who have posed for their picture on a giraffe. It may look like this was group foraging, but the way these guys do it is one hunter at a time. But if it's a, an animal that's well struck, others then join in the the tracking, and everybody comes to the kill. And these guys have posed on this giraffe. But there they are, using these projectile weapons, which archaeologists tell us weren't around until the Upper Paleolithic. So this is a kind of technology we can't take deeply into the past. They put metal tips on their arrows. That's Ahadza's great-grandmother there. She's using a metal pot for the thing that her grandchild is waiting for dinner. And um, then the, so these middle photographs are from Australia, the Ayara in the, in the center part, and the Mardu in the western desert. And these guys are using firearms. And... Um, 
motor vehicles, and yet we can learn from the trade-offs they face. And, and then finally, this Aceh woman, so these are foragers in eastern Paraguay, there she is, using a steel-headed axe. Nevertheless, we can, by paying attention to the problems people face and how they solve them, what we see is that the trade-offs that they have to solve, social trade-offs, gastric trade-offs that are ultimately reproductive, can account for the kind of variation that we see. Um, so what would we like to know? Well, we, we know something about the trade-offs that we can see where we can actually watch them, watch people facing them. What were the trade-offs for our ancestors and our collaterals? Uh, not enough time to go into the, well, maybe I have to a little bit. So this, we've seen figures that show some of this, what, what the map is showing uh, there. The, the, the yellow is showing Homo erectus getting out right after our genus appears. It gets out of Africa into the temperate and tropical old world um, where, where there had not been um, uh, hominines before. Uh, then the Neanderthals are, they're kind of covering up some of the Homo erectus space, and uh, they are outside of Africa. And then the, the lineage that gave us almost all of our genes gets out of Africa maybe only 50,000 years ago, woo, to Australia, to Europe, and um, then populations stay very low. So one of the things that, that Nick spends a lot of time on in this book is what he calls the forager population paradox. Wherever we see people hunting and gathering, where people do good demography, and that ain't easy uh, to really create believable life tables, populations are always growing. And they can't be always growing, otherwise we'd be up to the moon in elephants, as, as Darwin <laughs> reminded us. Even at the lowest level of population growth we see, if you had, if you had started with 100 people and populations were growing at a quarter of a percent a year, in 10,000 years there would be 7 trillion people. That's three orders of magnitude more than we've already got. So... Why did populations stay so low so long? And then there were places where they didn't, and there was spreading. Boy, would we like to know uh, how to account for that. So what, um, what do we do now? Well, first of all, one of the important things about our, our Hadza project was um, uh, O'Connell, being an archaeologist, was really paying attention to the archaeological reflection of the behavior that we're looking at and um, more attention to that, how the sort of behavior we see is reflected in the archaeological record. You can't just dig it up and let it talk to you. You need to have a way to go at that relationship, and especially for questions about fire and cooking. And of course, more paleoecology, so we can really understand what the opportunities and constraints are, including fire, spreading grasslands meant more landscape fires and so on. And I, maybe I should skip this. I, I was asking Anne if, if this is possible. <laughs> can the population geneticists maybe, as we get more, more data and more ancient DNA, can, can they, the, the favored hypothesis for people who confront this forager population paradox and who've tried to model it is that populations grow, but then they crash. They crash and they go locally extinct. Well, can the, is there any way that we can get something out of the population genetics about that? Maybe not. Um, so now I'm turning to life history and reproduction, very related here, that we've, we've talked about how um, actually chimpanzees are closer to us than they are to gorillas. So our closest lineage uh, living is, in, is chimpanzees and bonobos, but our life histories are different in these fascinating ways which... My favorite hypothesis is what underlies so many other things about us. Much greater longevity. In hunting and gathering mortality regimes, a third of the adult female years lived are post-fertile. Uh, so what is, what is that about? Maturation takes longer. 
But weaning is earlier, so both birth intervals are way shorter. And if we do all the allometries properly, they're really short. I'm going to try to get at that. But here are three figures to illustrate this life history. We're just looking at the female part of the population uh, pyramid for three different hunter-gatherer populations. I can't say very much about them. There isn't time. But um, the, the orange bars are the, are the girls who are not, haven't had their first kid yet. The green bars are the women in their childbearing years and then the golden years above, right? And what the length of the bars, the width of the bars, is the fraction of the female population in those ages. But what I want to underline is that life expectancy in all these cases is well less than 40, but the reason for that is because of all the infant and juvenile mortality, all the little short lives that go into that average. And if in, in any of these populations you made it through to adulthood, chances are so good that you will live well beyond your fertility. So what is likely? Well, since I'm the one who's talking, I'm going to tell you what I think is most likely. Uh, and actually, I think some people will, uh, would be prepared to agree with this. A genus Homo evolved in Africa as these climate cycles were reducing the forests and spreading savannas, much more seasonal environments, landscape fires in, the, in these savannas, but the kinds of plants that do well in savannas are really different than the things that do well in my heavens in um, uh, forests. And uh, to take these resources, size and strength really matter. So little kids, uh, they try, so these are hods of photographs, little kids try, but they're just not strong enough, versus great ape foods, where if you're a chimpanzee, while you are nursing and your mom is carrying you along, you are also acquiring your own food. Within the first year, we know from the isotopes that uh, those kids are feeling, feeding themselves a part of their diet before they're even weaned. And see how the life history looks different? In, our, in the case of humans, what we've got is this extended... Uh, slower aging, extended longevity, it goes with that story, hence this hypothesis that, that what happened was the subsidies that came from the older females uh, shortened the birth spacing for the, their fertile daughters, more descendants, that kind of longevity increased in future generations, and we can't go back and look. So mathematical modeling is um, a way to get at this, and this is a recent version of modeling Peter Kim at um, uh, Sydney University. What you see on the panel on the left is showing with this agent-based model the equilibrium if you have chimpanzee-like, great ape-like life history and um, uh, longevity stays essentially the same as does the end of female fertility. Once uh, the few older females that actually are coming to the end of their fertility, once we allow in the model, allow them to subsidize the, the uh, dependent juveniles, then what happens is the, if, if, the, if the simulations escape the basin of attraction, they move to the human-like longevity, but they keep female fertility stuck there at the same place because it's the grandmother effect that does it. And what happens is it's, this has a huge effect on the boys. So I'm not going to have time to talk about all these things, but I was showing just the female side of the life history. Now, using the same sources, I've included the males and what happens when this, when this life history change with, with female fertility ending at the same place happens and longevity increases in our lineage is we get all these old fertile males, all these old guys, way more fertile males than females. And across all kinds of animals, including even invertebrates, when you have male bias sex ratios in the mating ages, mate guarding comes to be the winning strategy. And in our lineage, what's so especially important is that 
Now we've got all those old males. What, what the other guys think of you is really important, whether you can claim a mate and hang on to her. And their respect really matters, hence these bonanzas. So goes the hypothesis. Well, there is more to say about brains, but um, the, the, the set of things that fit together here is, is astonishing. And uh, I, I, I pass on to uh, Alyssa. <laughs> to add some stuff about kids that I would have talked about if I'd been more organized. <laughs> I'd first like to thank the CARTA co-directors, uh, Jeet Varkey, Margaret Schoeniger, and Rusty Gage, and the associate director, Pascal Ganyu. CARTA is very special to me. Um, I started changing slides and running around behind the scenes just to get access to all of the speakers when I was a graduate student starting in 2001. So it's been um, a very long love affair for me with CARTA, and I'm so pleased to see so many people here today, and I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about some of my work today. Um, my research sits at the intersection of diet composition and life history, and I was tasked with talking about um, parenting and child development. So much like some of our earlier speakers in this morning's session, as you might imagine, those are very large topics, and so I struggled with how to, how to tackle a decade's worth of research in these two very big uh, transdisciplinary fields. So um, I came up with hopefully, a plan that will um, enable me to do so today. Humans are arguably one of the most biologically successful species on the planet. Although I will say that some recent work on the most influential organisms in evolutionary history have the earthworm, uh, which has been around for about 500 million years, uh, outranking us. I'm not going to talk about earthworms today. Uh, today I'm going to talk about one of the reasons that we as a species have been so successful, enabling us to populate all reaches of the planet, calling even the most extreme of habitats home. Human biological success may be linked with our extraordinary ability to cooperate with one another. While cooperation is observed in many other species, human cooperation is anomalous in both nature and scale. We form long-lasting ties with both genetically related and unrelated individuals. And this cooperation is linked with our reproduction. So in order to understand parenting and cooperation or child development, we have to consider the reproductive challenges faced by our ancestors, as well as the larger social context in which they unfolded. Human mothers have a very distinct life history compared to other primates, as we just learned, and compared to other apes. Many aspects of our reproduction are different, including a later age at first birth, relatively short interbirth intervals, or the time between each birth. We also give birth to large-brained and fairly helpless infants who are dependent for a longer period of time, and we wean these infants earlier long before they are nutritionally independent and can provision themselves. It's been estimated that it requires nearly 13 million kilocalories to raise one single infant from birth to nutritional independence. Such requirements go far beyond what a mother can procure alone. As human mothers wean their infants before they are nutritionally independent, they're able to resume their ovulation sooner and have subsequent offspring more rapidly, effectively shortening the interbirth interval. But this means that human moms are faced with a unique problem of providing care to unweaned infants while simultaneously maintaining economic production to successfully feed all of their older children. So they, in essence, stack their children. This challenging task of taking care of multiple dependent offspring with various needs, is one of the distinct features of being a human mother, something that other apes don't contend with. So the question is, how did this life history evolve in our species? How did our foremothers do it? The answer is that they did it with help. This form of child-rearing and of reproduction um, can be called cooperative breeding. 
a reproductive system where group members, group members other than the biological parents or allo parents, aid in the care and provisioning of young. The use of this term to describe this aspect of human reproduction was introduced by Sarah Hurdy in her book Mothers and Others, which was first published in 2009. The cooperative breeding hypothesis proposes that apes, with the life history attributes of Homo sapiens, could not have evolved unless allomothers had this help, this assistance in caring for and provisioning their young. More recently, other scholars have offered alternative terms to describe the human-specific pattern of cooperation and the provisioning and care of young, but the concept remains similar to or the same as the concept that Hurdy originally proposed. Hurdy has gone on to argue that this unusual mode of rearing young generated novel ape phenotypes, subsequently subjected to directional selection that favored those infants who were better at monitoring the mental states of others, so successfully eliciting care from caregivers or potential caregivers. And the result was an ape who was already socially intelligent, who was emotionally and cognitively pre-adapted for the evolution of higher levels of cooperation. The evolutionary outcome is that humans have been selected to be pro-social as helpers in a cooperative breeding system. And the period of human infancy has also come under selection pressures for skills of social cognition and communication, something that's been argued by Sarah Hurdy, Kristen Hawkes, and others. The cooperative breeding hypothesis has, over the past decade, since Hurdy published Mothers and Others, had an incredible impact on the scholarship being produced in a wide range of disciplines, ranging from neuroscience to human biology to social psychology. Scholars are now reframing the ways in which they think about the evolution of parenting and the evolution of cooperation in light of the cooperative breeding hypothesis. Much of my own work over the past 10 years has tested the cooperative breeding hypothesis, looking to see how many individuals help a mother and under what conditions, I work among a small-scale foraging population, the Hadza of Tanzania. The community who I work with are still hunting and gathering for a significant portion of their diet. They practice distributed childcare, they live in small groups and are semi-nomadic, and thus represent an ideal population in which to study patterns of allomaternal investment. You can see my field site located on the screen with a pop-out map. Um, my field site, I tend to work east of Lake Yasi. You can see the yellow highlighted portion um, just east of Lake Yasi there. And those are the camps that I've been working in um, since 2004. So one of the first questions that I wanted to ask was, who cares for Hadza children? So we recorded the percent of time that infants were being held and by whom. Using data collected over 17 months of field work, and 42,000 instantaneous scan observations where we monitored what people were doing in camp, we analyzed the patterns of infant holding of 470 individuals, 234 females and 236 males. 185 of these individuals were recorded holding infants. 46 of these were mothers, and 139 of them were allomothers. And we found that the total time that Hadza children were held 69% of that total time, they were held by their mother, and 31% of the time by owl mothers, who ranged in age from one and a half to 79 years old. After mothers, fathers were next in line, in terms of who spent the most time holding infants, followed by older sisters and then grandmothers. And interestingly, when controlling for residence, when a focal infant had both a maternal and a paternal grandmother residing in camp, we found no significant difference in the amount of time that the infant was held by either grandmother. We also found that across holders of all ages, females spent more time holding than their male counterparts. Juveniles, children, ranging in age from 1.5 up through um, being juvenile and adolescents, up to 18 years, represented 62% of the total population of allo mothers. Children were held by related individuals significantly more often than by unrelated individuals, and interestingly, a higher degree of genetic relatedness between the holders and the child associated with the higher mean percent of time being held. And interestingly, above the age of weaning, we found that a decrease in the frequency of maternal holding correlated with a higher rate of allomaternal holding, meaning that care that was provided by these allomothers decreased the amount of time 
that mothers spent holding their child, thus releasing her to perform other activities. Given how much allo-maternal assistance children were providing to mothers by way of childcare, I wanted to explore how economically productive Hadza children might be. I was interested in seeing if Hadza children were able to offset some of the cost of their own care. So we collected 70 days of food collection and foraging data on 34 children ranging in age from 3 to 17 years of age, and we found that Hadza kids are avid foragers, something we've known for a long time. Hadza child economic productivity is one of the most well-studied aspects of Hadza ethnography. They collect a wide range of food. Children focus their collection efforts on fruit, like baobab, berries, figs. They focus their um, foraging efforts on birds, on tubers, on honey, small game, like hyrax, bush mice, and galagos, and also collect droops and legumes. Several of the children in our sample were able to meet at least half of their daily caloric requirements above the age of five years, a finding that confirmed work done by Nicholas Blurton-Jones, Kristen Hawks, and Jim O'Connell. And we also found that boys consume much more while out foraging than girls who appear to eat less while out collecting food, yet bring home more to share with the group. We also recently analyzed around 17,000 scan observations of how children spend their time. And we reanalyzed the foraging return data and then correlated it with total foraging energy expenditure, calculated with the BMI of each participant. And here you can see the total foraging um, energy expenditure for each individual child, males on the left and females on the right. And we found that almost every foraging trip resulted in a caloric surplus over the energy expended during foraging. In males, the average caloric surplus was around 2,000 kilocalories, and in females, the caloric surplus was around 700 kilocalories. But we know from previous work that the boys are eating their surplus often um, while they are out foraging. Given that some children are collecting a surplus above and beyond the energetic costs of collecting food, and we found that many children are returning to camp with food to share, we wanted to find out who these children were sharing their food with. Over the past decade, many researchers have argued that our species has been organized through much of our evolutionary history into partially kin-based resource acquisition and consumption units, and that this is part of the cooperative breeding matrix. So my colleagues and I set out to analyze the food-sharing patterns of Hadza children. I collected naturalistic foraging data on 62 meals over 36 days, which amounted to 128 instances of dyadic food sharing. And we then constructed a data frame with all sharing dyads and the total log kilocalories shared by each child and to whom. And we found that starting in middle childhood, around seven years old, children began increasing their frequency of sharing. And the trend continued, so that the oldest kids in the sample were sharing the most frequently and in the greatest amount. We didn't find any sex differences, however, in the amount of food shared among children um, of these ages. And I also have a map here um, of who the children in each of our study camps shared food with. As you can see, it's pretty messy. There was a lot of reciprocation in the amount of food shared between partners, but not, interestingly, in the frequency. So the amount over time seemed to be fairly reciprocal. Sharing did not appear to be biased towards kin, and we did have several instances where kids shared food with the adults in the household particularly if parents were injured or cognitively impaired and were not as productive as other adult foragers in their camp. So what do the, all of these data tell us? They suggest that children among the Hadza are certainly offsetting the cost of their own care. While children are being provisioned, they're also actively contributing to their own caloric needs, and in some cases, sharing food with other children, and sometimes with their parents and grandparents. Karen Kramer has long argued that this type of intergenerational transfer of food is a critical and often overlooked component of cooperative breeding. So where does all of this leave us? In the last decade, research on cooperative breeding in humans has exploded. I searched Google Scholar last night to make sure that I had an accurate number for you today. And if you select just the last decade, from 2009 to 2019, and use the key terms cooperative breeding in humans, you retrieve 22,700 citations. So as of 2019, what do we know? We know that cooperative breeding, or child rearing, characterizes most of the world's cultures. We know that mothers rely on a wide constellation of caregivers, including older children. 
We know, uh, what we think we know, I should say, is that a human mother's best reproductive strategy is likely a flexible one. And what this means is kind of both now and in our evolutionary evolutionary past, where she was able to rely on various forms of social support to assist her in provisioning and raising her offspring. We also think we know that cooperative breeding has deep evolutionary roots and is a key attribute in the evolution of our species. And we think we know that juveniles are an important part of the human cooperative breeding matrix. At least I think I know that, and I think others would agree with me. What we need to know, there's a lot that we need to know. We need to know the cost of investment in subsidizing children. We need to know much more about metabolic energy allocation during adolescence. And things I haven't mentioned here, uh, we need to know a lot more specifically about diet composition as the Hadza are changing and how early nutrition transition as they're moving away from a diet of foraged foods is impacting the decisions and choices that not only child foragers are making, but also moms in this rapidly changing ecosystem. In the end, what I can say over the last 10 years of work being done on cooperative breeding and how it relates to parenting and child development is that important work is being done and will continue to be done. And I'm eager to see what the next decade of research uncovers. For now, we can end with the idea that it appears that the old adage that it takes a village to raise a child has very deep evolutionary roots. Thank you. Uh, So, morality. It is, of course, a topic that has exercised many philosophers and historians and and political thinkers for a very long time about the origin and source of moral dispositions. And in 1975, Ed Wilson made the point that the evolution of human sociality is a fundamental conundrum. And part of the motivation I think he had for saying that was at that time, and perhaps even now, Many biologists who work on the evolution of the brain think that we are fundamentally and irrevocably and irredeemably selfish. And as Richard Dawkins put it, you know, you have to kind of beat it into the kid uh, if you are going to have the child grow up to be a socially adequate, responsible citizen. Now, it's interesting to me, actually, that Darwin didn't think that. And in 1871, in The Descent of Man, he asks the question, where does our moral sense or our conscience come from? And he makes the point that it probably has a combination of origins. There is our social instinct. And here, of course, he is really echoing Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics. We are naturally social, says Aristotle. So we have social instincts. We acquire habits and skills and continuously do so. And we have this funny thing we call reasoning, or perhaps we should call it problem solving, that somehow, not uniquely us, but in general, many animals have the capacity to solve social problems. This was also the view of the the two great Scotsmen, David Hume uh, and Adam Smith. So it has not been a universally uh, standard story that we are unexceptionally selfish, um, but sometimes we act uh, in a way that you might call moral. And for the purposes of discussion and to keep things simple, I'm going to mean something very simple by moral, namely that you incur a cost to yourself in order to give benefit to somebody else. Now, that's not an adequate definition, but for present purposes, I think, to keep the wagons moving, that will suffice. So we know, of course, that sociality evolved many different times. There are social insects, there are social fish. But what is unique about mammalian sociality is that it has tremendous flexibility and is responsive to individual situations and circumstances, sometimes unique circumstances. 
Um, and we know that mammals and birds in general show these characteristics. There is reconciliation after a squabble that primates, for example, and rats will show pro-social choice. That there is orphan adoption, for example, amongst marmosets and amongst chimpanzees. Males will adopt orphans even if they are not the biological fathers. I think that's quite cool, actually. Um, these animals will, mammals and birds, will show empathy. They will punish, third-party punishment. They have some understanding of fairness. It may not map perfectly onto mine or yours, but they do. They show considerable facility in self-control, in cooperation, and in problem-solving. So the question really is, why did sociality evolve in this rather interesting way in mammals and birds? And the answer is a surprising one, and it all comes down to the fact that about 200 million years ago, warm-blooded creatures appeared on the planet. And this was a terrific thing, of course, because they could forage at night when the other guys were waiting for the sun to come up. In fact, they might even forage on those guys. The cost turned out to be rather substantial. Gram for gram, a warm-blooded animal has to eat 10 times as much, requires 10 times the calories. That is a huge ecological constraint, and it changed everything. If you have really big calorie needs and you're living amongst salamanders and lizards and so forth, you've got to do better than they, especially because there's other warm-blooded animals about as well. And basically, there are many ways you might have, or Mother Nature might have achieved this, but big intelligence was the answer. And in the case of mammals, that involved this wholly new structure that all mammals have and that no non-mammals have, and that is cortex. Aside about birds, they appear, given what we know now at the microstructural level about wiring, that they have a homologue of cortex. If you're going to be really intelligent and you're going to do it in a flexible way, you can't hang around waiting for your genes to program that all in. Learning is what you need. And as Terry showed in the case of these deep learning networks, that's the secret sauce. Big learning, however, means something kind of costly, and it means immaturity. And that's because the neurons that are going to do the learning or embody what is learned have to have space to grow. And you can see from the, the slide on the bottom what some of that growth actually looks like. Um, Jean-Pierre Changeur has this calculation that in the human brain at birth, babies acquire about 10 million synapses per second, which is quite astonishing. So the trouble is, though, uh, all that immaturity is going to give you big learning. It's going to give you big intelligence. However, you are born helpless. So as Sarah Hurdy has uh, very insightfully realized, Mother Nature had to pick on somebody to take care of these. And that somebody happened to be the person who was close by, mothers. And, of course, eventually, uh, fathers got into the story as well. So in the evolution of the mammalian and the avian brain, there was a reorganization which we can sort of metaphorically conceive of in the following way. That although all animals have the wiring to see to their own needs, their warmth, their food, and their safety, it's as though the wiring in the case of mammals and birds sort of expanded so as to include the babies, me and mine. And that was the huge, amazing genetic change, especially in the context of having this new structure uh, cortex. Now, we don't know all the details of how that was achieved, but we do know that there is a suite of neurochemicals that play a crucial role 
in bringing that about, in bringing it about that the mother has the passion to care for the babies, and that's by virtue of attachment to those babies, like it's part of her. We know that oxytocin is a crucial element in that. Oxytocin was repurposed by nature from its role in, in uh, the body and put in the brain to serve for bonding and attachment. Uh, there are various places we now know where it comes from, but principally it comes from the hypothalamus, the very ancient subcortical structure, and oxytocin is released both into the pituitary, but it's also released into the brain. Other neurochemicals that are really important for this include uh, the endogenous cannabinoids and the endogenous opioids that make you feel good. <laughs> Dopamine that is very crucial for learning and for reward, that is finding certain things like cuddling the babies feels really good and that's also rewarding. And so you have this lovely biofeedback loop uh, that tends to work pretty well. So he might say, okay, well that's a nice story about mums and babies and mammals and birds, but um, how does that link up to morality? to this really highfalutin thing uh, that we think about. And I think the answer is that with, and now here I'm guessing, rather small genetic changes, you can extend, as in the case of the prairie voles, you can extend bonding from babies to also mates, or in other cases to kin, or in yet other cases to friends. And different species will have different patterns of what kind of social bonding and what kind of social attachments work very well for them in that context. For humans, almost certainly we are intensely and highly social. We're almost like marmosets. We're quite a bit like wolves. And... Um, but like them, we also see variability. Some, some people, like the old prospectors I knew as a kid, or the loggers, they kind of like to be by themselves quite a bit, but they do also want social uh, connections from time to time. Other people are intensely compassionate, and sometimes so much so that we call them, rather ungratefully, as do-gooders. So depending on the species and how it makes a living, then we can see that attachment will extend in various ways and to varying degrees, although it's probably also always highest for babies and family. Now, of course, since Joe brought up the point about culture, it's really important to emphasize that while... The oxytocin story provides what you might call the platform for moral behavior. It's the learning of how to get on. It's those habits and skills that Darwin talked about that are really important for a group having the kind of cohesion so that it works well for basically everybody. But learning norms and rules only works because we like each other, because we want to be with each other, because disapproval is painful and approval is pleasurable. So the mo emotions, of course, are going to be highly engaged. And so when people talk about their conscience lacerating them, what they really are talking about is the kind of history that produced in their midbrain dopamine system and in their hypothalamus a certain kind of response to a particular idea or proposal or action. Now there's another thing about oxytocin which is really quite interesting. And that is that there is a kind of, crudely speaking, opposition between the stress hormones like cortisol and oxytocin. So when oxytocin levels go up, stress hormones go down, which means you feel less anxious, you feel more comfortable, oh, this person's kind of nice, well, you know. And if you're a chimpanzee, you might even start grooming each other. If you're a human, you'll talk to each other. 
uh, and you might exchange confidences. That's kind of like grooming in chimpanzees. And the interesting thing is that when individuals trust and like each other, cooperation can quite naturally emerge. In other words, although it's tempting for some biologists to think we have to have a gene for it, maybe it just emerges as part of what is likely to happen when you've got a nice oxytocin flood and there's a job to be done. So this is just a picture of of the Inuit who are highly cooperative. Incidentally, the females don't forage because there isn't really much to forage for. I mean, you know, there's a few berries around in the summer, but that's kind of it. Not that they aren't busy, uh, but they don't forage um, much at all. Um, And so cooperation can be very satisfying, just as learning by imitation, learning by trial and error to have a certain skill can be very satisfying and also give you status uh, within the group. And here are the, the Inuit in a whaling boat where, of course, again, the cooperation is very intense, very moment by moment. It has to be exact because in the old days, of course, they didn't have firearms. They had spears made out of whalebone. Now, I mean, I I, uh, am very um, thrilled, really, to hear the respects in which we humans are are unique. But I have this kind of stubborn part where I kind of like to see also the links to non-humans. And wolves are, are a particular favorite, although Matsuzawa's chimpanzees I'm very fond of, and I found myself really liking the horses today, too. Um, but in this particular slide, what you'll see is a, a moose uh, mother with her newborn calf, and strategically placed are the wolves. They form a pack. The pack has one breeding pair. Incidentally, those who are not engaged in the breeding, allo parent, the pups, uh, and help train the pups and help support the female by bringing in food. But anyhow, they are very, very strategic, and there is a tremendous amount for the young ones to learn. So the adolescents will be hanging back watching everything. When they're old enough, they'll be allowed to take part. Famously, of course, they are very, very efficient at this, and indeed, they got the calf. Uh, The one at the back here kept harassing uh, the moose who knew that her leg was in danger. The others came in from the front, game over. Now, in the next slide, I'm just going to show you um, an experiment that was done at the Wolf Center in Austria, which is doing some absolutely stunning work on cooperation in wolves. And uh, Kent and I hope that this will <laughs> this will work. Okay, so uh, so what you're going to see is the wolves are are tasked to do the pulling task jointly, simultaneously, in order to get food. So watch, yeah. So the one guy waited until the other guy got there. And then they had to do it exactly at the same time. These guys are so fast, they read each other so precisely. uh, And they do it. Interestingly, what they found was that dogs would cooperate to do it with a human, but they won't cooperate with another dog to do it. And they don't really know why, um, but that's a story about self-domestication, I fear. Uh, um, but it is very interesting that the wolves, and probably I'm guessing huskies, have sufficient independence, and they aren't so beholden to the human that they will go ahead, but they will wait until the other one gets there so that they can pull it simultaneously. And my final wolf story is another story about cooperation. But this is a story some of you will have heard before. But it's between ravens and wolves, who in the natural state in the North Woods will play together to a degree. But here's the thing, and this has been seen in a number of packs, 
If the raven knows where there's a kill by, let's say, a bear, the raven will come and alert the wolves. Hop, 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 squawk, squawk. The wolves know what that means. They come together, they howl, the pack forms, and they follow the raven through the woods to the kill. And here's the picture of the wolves having arrived. You can see the raven down here, and the wolves have to drive off the grizzly, and they do. They harass and harass and harass the poor old lone grizz, who finally, probably has had his fill anyway, gives up, and the wolves take over. What's in it for the raven? Yeah, so meanwhile, <laughs> it's not just the goodness of his heart, but then maybe a lot of cooperation isn't. So he goes and gets his pals. They all come back. And they may just eat with the wolves, which does sometimes happen, or they may harass the wolves until the wolves leave. But the nice part of that story, and biologists will tell me this is not cooperation, this is uh, uh, symbiosis, you know, learn something. Um, um, but it looks like cooperation to me, and I wouldn't say that if ravens weren't so smart. Um, and they are. And I haven't said much about birds except that pair bonding amongst birds is about 98%. Pair bonding amongst mammals is, is a much lower percentage in the single digits. So, so there are interesting reasons for that having to do with how birds make a living. I mean, a mother bird on her own is just not going to make it because she's off foraging and the ravens or the owls or the eagles will come and that's that. Um, but I think this cross-species cooperation is a very interesting phenomenon and it has been, been seen in, in other species as well, but it's particularly well documented in, in the case of wolves. So yeah, I think we probably can be called super cooperators and self-domesticated and all that, but it's very interesting to me that, that other animals, such as marmosets, wolves, and so forth um, are quite extraordinary in their degree of sociality. And I call it morality. It seems to me it's as good as you get. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.